like to ask you to turn with me to our text for this morning, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. John 15, 1 through 8, and if you're following along in the Bibles and the pews, that's on page 876. Uh, We're continuing a sermon series here that we actually started two weeks ago on Labor Day weekend, and I sort of joked in the lead up to that sermon, and then especially after that weekend, uh, you know, they, they always say, if a tree falls in the forest but no one's around to hear it, doesn't make a sound. If a pastor preaches on Labor Day weekend and there's hardly anyone around to hear it, you know, does it actually make a difference? Um, but I would encourage you, if you have not had a chance to either watch that service, to stream it, or to listen to that sermon, to go back and do so, because uh, that's kind of starting off this sermon series actually two weeks ago. Uh, this sermon series is called Apprentice to Christ. We're talking about what it means to be disciples of Christ, and two weeks ago we talked about Jesus' call to follow him as his disciples and what that means. Um, and then Steve, I was gone last week for a wedding, like I mentioned, and then Steve preached last week. I'd also encourage you, if you hadn't had a chance to listen to that sermon, to go back and listen to that one too. It's good, and he's funnier than I am. So, uh, but we're picking back. Uh, we're picking the sermon series back up this morning, and we actually get to hear from another one of Jesus' original disciples, the Apostle John, who writes uh, this passage and records Jesus' words about discipleship for us here. And so, John chapter fifteen, verses one through eight, and this is what John records Jesus saying. Jesus says, "I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener." He cuts off every branch in me that does not bear fruit, while he prunes every branch that does bear fruit so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean or pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers, sisters, and friends in Jesus Christ, I don't remember where I first heard this, uh, but I once heard someone say that the quickest way to find out what you worship, at least what you really worship, is by looking at how you spend your time. After all, our time is valuable, right? Time is money, we say. And so the idea there is that because our time is valuable, we usually only spend it on things that matter, things that are important, things that are worthwhile to us and worthy of spending our time on. If that's true, then, what does that say about our relationship with Jesus? Does how we spend our time say that he matters to us? Does it say that he is important to us? Does it say that he is worthwhile and worthy of spending our time on? Or does it say something else? After all, that's essentially what Jesus is asking for in this passage. He's asking for us to spend time with him. 
In verse four of this text, Jesus says, remain in me as I also remain in you. Now that word remain is important here. It comes up a lot in this passage. The Greek word there is meno, and it literally means to abide. Abide in me, Jesus says. Now that's kind of an old word, right? Abide, it's not a word we use very often these days anymore. And so as a result, I'm not sure that we always catch all the significance or meaning of that word here in this passage. But it's important to understand that abide is actually the verb form of another old word, abode. You know what an abode is, right? It's someplace you live, someplace you dwell, someplace you reside. And in essence, that's what Jesus is asking us as his disciples to do here. He's asking us to abide, to abode in him, to dwell in him, to live in him, to literally make our home in him. In other words, as Christians, we should be so bound up, so wrapped up, so joined up in Jesus that spending time with him is literally like coming home at the end of the day, kicking our shoes off and feeling at home. That's what being with Jesus should feel like. That, says Jesus, is how we show ourselves to be his disciples. We show ourselves to be Jesus' disciples by abiding in him aboding in him, making our home in him, and spending time with him. But we say, I don't have that kind of time. Uh, I'm too busy. I've got too much going on. I can't abide in Jesus like that. I can't abode in him. I'm too busy to spend that kind of time with Jesus and make my home in him. Maybe a few minutes for prayer here or there. But the rest of the time, have you seen my to-do list? I can't tell you how many people have said that to me over the years. In fact, I can't tell you how many times I've said that sort of thing over the years. I've said things like, you know, I'd love to be a better disciple of Jesus. I'd love to spend more time reading my Bible, more time praying, more time just being with him. But you know, the problem is I just don't have time. I've said that. Other serious disciples of Jesus who I've known have said that. I know Jesus wants me to have a strong relationship with him, abide in him, abode in him, but I just don't have the time to do that. Now, I actually think that's kind of interesting when we talk about time like that. It's interesting to me because we here in North America actually have more time-saving devices and technology than anyone anywhere else in the world or at any other point in history. For instance, a Christian pastor and author, John Mark Comer, who's actually also the guy behind the Spiritual Disciplines Curriculum Practicing the Way that we're gonna be using uh, in our table groups, um, he writes about this in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which I highly recommend, by the way. He says this, about a century ago, technology started to change our relationship to time with so-called labor-saving devices. For example, in winter, you used to have to go out into the forest, risk being eaten alive by a wild animal, chop a tree down with an ax using your bare hands, drag the tree back to your cabin, chop it into pieces, and then make a fire again with your bare hands. Now all you have to do is walk over to the thermostat on the wall, or if you have a smart home on your phone, and push the up arrow. Voila, warm air magically appears. He says, examples are legion. We used to have to walk everywhere. Now we have cars to get us from place to place in a hurry. We used to make all our food from scratch. Now we have takeout. We used to write letters by hand. Now we have email and, of course, our new best friend, AI. 
and the list goes on and on, right? Dishwashers, washing machines, dryers, vacuums, faucets, crockpots, stovetops, all the stuff we use every day that save us time, but we don't even think about it. All those things and more used to take people a ton more time than they take us these days, but not anymore. I mean, we even have refrigerators these days, and I don't have one of these because our fridge is like 20 years old. Um, But we even have refrigerators these days that apparently will scan their contents and come up with a grocery list for you so that you can go to the store without even having to open your fridge and know what you need or just order it and have Instacart deliver it to your door, right? And yet, Comer says, in spite of our smartphones and programmable coffee pots and dishwashers and laundry machines and toasters, most of us feel like we have less time, not more. What gives? Labor-saving devices really do save time. So where did all that time go? And the answer is that we spent it on other things. You see, I've got a theory. Uh, My theory is that we don't actually have a time problem as people today. What we have instead is a prioritization problem. First of all, study after study has debunked the idea that we would get more done if we just had more time. They've actually tried this out in the workplace with different length work weeks, okay? What's the perfect uh, amount of time for a work, work week? 30 hours, 35, 40, 50, 60, 70. People have played with this uh, over, over the course of time, but it actually turns out that the more you work, it does not necessarily make you more productive. Um, I was reading about this. Uh, apparently, during the French Revolution, they made the work week like 13 or 14 days long before a weekend and, uh, because they wanted to increase productivity, and productivity actually went down, and the suicide rate went up. What does that tell you about whether or not just having more time and working harder makes us more productive? It turns out that there's actually a reason why we've sort of collectively settled on the 40-hour work week, because after you get much more above that, your productivity just plummets. Even though you work more hours and spend more time on work, you actually end up accomplishing less. I don't understand all the science or psychology behind it, but it's true. Go look it up. People smarter than me will tell you about it, okay? Second, and this is a point that kind of dawned on me recently, It's not like our ancestors had more time. They had just as much time as we do, fewer time-saving or labor-saving devices, and yet they got just as much done as us, maybe even more. And so what's the problem? What's the deal? Why are we so busy? Why do we feel so hurried and harried and rushed from thing to thing to thing so that when Jesus asks for a bit of our time, we go, I'm sorry, I don't have any for you. Well, again, the answer is that we are prioritizing other things over him. For instance, did you know that the average American spends almost seven hours a day online? Seven hours a day on the internet. Now, obviously, some of that is necessary stuff like email and work and (laughs) NFL.com. But part of it, if we're honest with ourselves, is kind of non-necessary stuff, right? Now, you all know I hate social media. I've talked about this many times from the pulpit. I'm on Facebook, but I don't use it. I have an Instagram account, but I pretty much just use it to send encouraging messages to Justin Fields, which definitely seems to be working. Um, So this is kind of low-hanging fruit for me, right? I don't have to give anything up by talking about this. But did you all know that the average American spends two hours and 13 minutes a day on social media? Two hours and 13 minutes every day. 
and that's the average. That means that some people are spending a lot more time on social media. Or what about TV? This has come down a bit since COVID when we were all watching way more TV than we used to because what else are you going to do when you're in quarantine? Uh, But the average American watches about two hours and 33 minutes of TV a day. Two hours and 33 minutes. If you add just those last two up, time spent on social media and time spent watching TV, that's almost five hours a day for the average American. And just so you don't think that this is all a youth or young people problem, which is the stereotype, right? When it comes to TV, you retire folks are actually the worst. Okay? That's because on average, American adults over 65 watch more TV than anyone else, up to four hours a day all by yourselves. I mean, I guess you've earned it. You know, you put in the time, you worked your job, you raised your family, but is that really how you want to be spending your time? Four hours of TV a day? Guys, I'm going to poke fun at you for a bit because I am a guy, so I feel like I can do this. Uh, Did you know that the average American man spends 10,000 hours playing video games before he turns 21? 10,000 hours. That's how much time the average American guy spends playing video games before they turn 21 these days. Coincidentally, 10,000 hours is also the amount of time experts estimate it takes you to master a skill. Any skill. Not just get good at it, not just get sort of kind of okay at it, master it, okay? The rapper Macklemore even has a song about this called 10,000 Hours, which I pretty much just mentioned so you all know how culturally informed I am, okay? But that means that the amount of time the average guy spends on video games, he could instead be learning just about anything else. Learning another language, publishing a book, becoming a world-renowned expert on renewable energy or ancient Near Eastern archaeology or quantum mechanics. I don't even know what quantum mechanics is, but it sounds smart. And you could become an expert in it if you simply stop playing as many video games as you do, guys. Or you could beat Call of Duty again, you know, at least people won't think you're a noob. Uh, This is a bit of an aside, but as a guy, especially as a Christian guy in the church, this drives me nuts. Because I, I can't come to any other conclusion than as American men, we have dumbed ourselves down. We have made ourselves shallow. We have hollowed ourselves out and made ourselves immature, weak, and wimpy husbands, fathers, and friends, and for our purposes this morning, disciples of Jesus Christ. And we have done this to ourselves. There are so many politicians and pastors and pop psychology experts on YouTube who are trying to come up with all these reasons for why there's been a decline in how American men behave. And I don't think that it's all the other reasons that they're trying to come up with. I think it's us. We've done this to ourselves. It's our fault. We're the ones to blame. And why? Because we've prioritized other things. Guys, I'm just going to keep going at us because I'm in this boat too. We have prioritized things like the yard, projects around the house, and cleaning our cars instead of our faith, instead of growing as Christian disciples. You know where I see this exemplified? Christian bookstores. Have you ever noticed this? Go to a Christian bookstore sometime and look at the men's section. It's tiny. 
Then go look at the women's section, and it's huge. There are literally hundreds of books by hundreds of authors on hundreds of different topics marketed to women, and for the most part, they're great. They're interesting, informative, well-written, and great for forming disciples of Jesus Christ. And not just female disciples of Jesus Christ. I've read a number of these books, and I found them incredibly helpful. They're good at just forming disciples of Jesus Christ, regardless of gender. And then you go to the men's section, and there's like two books there. And they're both by Tim Tebow. Okay? (laughs) Now, don't get me wrong. I love Tim Tebow. I think he's just about the nicest person on earth. Okay? And I also really wish that it would have worked out for him in the NFL. Maybe the Bears can sign him. He might be a better quarterback than what we've currently got. But books by Tim Tebow and other Christian athletes, for that matter, do not a Christian man make. Tim Tebow simply telling stories of his time playing football does not help us grow necessarily as disciples of Jesus. And yet those are the only books you find in Christian bookstores for men. Why? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. It has to do with economics. You see, Christian publishers want to make money. That's how business works, right? You design, develop, and put out products that you think will sell. But Christian publishers have noticed something about Christian American men, which is that we don't read. At least we don't read anymore because we used to, but that's kind of stopped. I'm not a reader, men say, as if reading is an acquired taste like coffee or beer. Both of which, by the way, we've worked to acquire those tastes, but not reading. In other words, we don't invest in our faith. We don't try to grow. And so as a result, publishers don't try to publish stuff for us anymore either. They're not going to pour time and money and work into putting something out that no one is going to buy. And so instead, they ask questions like, well, guys kind of like football, right? Who was that football player who used to write those verses in his eye black? Yeah, Tim Tebow. Let's see if he wants to publish something. And they put out a book by him. The point is, and I'm not just talking about us as guys, but all of us, we don't have a problem with time. We have a problem with prioritization. The simple fact is that we have deprioritized our faith and our relationship with Jesus while prioritizing literally everything else in our lives. And then when God feels distant and detached and far away, we wonder why. Now, part of this, I think, is because at some point we slipped into a comfortable, easy, a la carte version of Christianity in the global West, where we decided that we could pick and choose the parts of the gospel that we liked, take those seriously, and then discard the rest. I don't know exactly where this came from, but it seems to be how a lot of Christians these days operate. In fact, for a frighteningly long time in my own life, that's how I operated when it came to the gospel. I could just be a part, I could just be a Christian in the areas that were convenient for me but then I could ignore the parts that were hard. And yet in Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's what Jesus' invitation to discipleship looks like. What he's literally saying there is, come, follow me, and die. And instead, our response has been, yeah, thanks, Jesus, but that sounds really hard. Can we make that a little easier? My friends, the answer is no. We can't make this easier because that is the way of our Lord. That is the way of our rabbi. And if we want to follow him, then at some point we need to get rid of the American capitalist consumer understanding of the Christian faith. 
that has infiltrated the North American church where we get to pick and choose what we like and the products that we'll sell and instead learn what it looks like to be a disciple and follower of Jesus, making our home in and abiding in him. I mean, we can't just call ourselves Christians, put the minimal effort possible in, and then somehow, someday, expect that we're going to end up as deeply formed followers of Jesus. If, if 1,300 years of nominal Christianity in the, in the West has taught us anything, it's that that approach to discipleship doesn't actually end up producing disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, two things you need to understand here. First, I am not just preaching to you all this morning. Uh, I'm preaching to myself too. That's actually something that my seminary professors used to, used to talk about in my, in my preaching classes. They used to say that the first person your sermons need to preach to is you. And that is the case very much so this morning. Because the fact is I, like so many of us, have prioritized so many other things than Christ for far too long in my life. And so at least part of why I'm preaching this this morning is because I've realized that I don't want to do that anymore. For the sake of my family, for the sake of my friends, for the sake of you all as your pastor, I don't want to keep spending my time prioritizing other things and wasting my life on anything other than Jesus. I want to be a better disciple of him and I want you all to be better disciples of him too. Which leads me to the second thing I want you to understand. I'm not asking for anything radical here. Okay, I'm not asking for you to quit social media, sell your TV, and live like a Luddite monk or nun who gets up at 3 a.m., reads the Bible for two hours, prays for three, and then gets the kids ready to school so that you can spend the rest of your day in continuous, ongoing conversation with Jesus. That's not realistic, and that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I am asking you to do, though, and what Jesus is asking us to do in this passage is for us to take a bit of that time that we spend on other things and spend it on him him instead. One less hour of screen time, 15 minutes less of Instagram, one less wax job on the car, and then use that time to read a devotional, a chapter of the Bible, pray, whatever it is you need to do to grow in your relationship with Christ. After all, Jesus went to the cross, was tortured, nailed to a piece of wood and died for us. The least we can do is say no to one more episode of Netflix for him. This, by the way, is exactly what Jesus means when he talks about pruning in this passage. In verses one through two here, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now, I'll admit right from the start, I don't know that much about gardening. Okay. My philosophy of gardening is pretty much the more you leave a plant alone, the better it will probably do. And my track record with plants reflects that. Okay. But while that works for some plants, it doesn't work for all of them. Certainly there are some plants that are best left on their own, like cacti, and I'm really good at those. But others need a bit of care and attention to truly make them come alive. Take rose bushes, for example. If you leave a rose bush to itself to just grow on its own, it won't automatically produce the kind of roses that you would want to put in a vase on your kitchen table. And that's because rose bushes don't automatically grow up towards the sun like other plants. 
Instead, left untended, what a rose bush will actually do is grow in on itself and become more dense. It will become uh, uh, tangled and scraggly, and while it will still produce roses, they won't be very beautiful. And that's because when a rose bush grows in on itself like that and becomes too dense, it actually, ironically, ends up blocking itself from the sunlight that it needs. In other words, rather than flourishing, a rose bush left to itself will actually stunt its own growth. And so that's why rose bushes need to be pruned. They need help to grow well and truly flourish. As counterintuitive as it sounds, they need a bit of surgery to achieve their full potential. And so that's the job of the gardener. The gardener comes to that bush and he cuts away those branches that are growing inward in order to free the ones that are growing up towards the light. And while the bush will produce fewer roses as a result, in the end, they will be much more beautiful. And that's what Jesus is saying about us. He's saying that we need a bit of pruning like that. We need some cutting away. We need some surgery that snips some things out of our lives so that in the end we can be even more faithful, fruitful disciples of him. And that's really why we've been trying to get together this this table group ministry that we've been talking about these last number of weeks. It's not just to give you one more thing to do. It's because we think there's an opportunity for discipleship here. After all, we have a purpose statement here at Ivanrest. You know what a purpose statement is? It's a statement that tells you your purpose. That's why you pay me to be your pastor, so I can explain things like that. And we have a purpose statement here at our church. Anyone know what it is? A couple of you have been listening recently. We just talked about this at a recent worship uh, volunteer night. It's growing God's kingdom through active discipleship. That's our purpose as a church. That's what we're trying to do. We are trying to grow God's kingdom through active discipleship. And that's all these groups are. That's what we want to do with them. We want the community accountability and study that groups like these provide to help us grow as Christians, to help us grow in our relationships with each other, and to help us grow in our relationship with Jesus. In other words, these groups are intended, like this text talks about, to prune us, to help us cut some stuff away and free us so that like a rose bush, we can grow up towards the one who has called us to be his disciples. That, by the way, is also why we're going to spend the next three years on or off, on and off talking about the spiritual disciplines because quite frankly, I know a few things that are better at pruning us than the disciplines of things like Sabbath, fasting, prayer, scripture, and all the rest. That's actually what's kind of awakened a newfound desire in me to be a disciple of Jesus is practicing some of those disciplines over the last couple of years. Now, a few caveats about all that. First, we are not asking you to do yet one more thing. I've heard uh, some of you say this, right? I'm already involved in a lot. I'm already doing this. I'm already doing that. And now on top of it, the church is asking me to do one more thing and join a table group. And that's not what we're trying to communicate. Uh, First, like we've already talked about, it's not that we don't have time for these sorts of things. It's that we prioritize other things. And so what we're actually asking you to do is to consider saying no to some other things so that instead you can say yes to something that we feel will be really good for your relationship with Christ. But we're not asking you just to do that on your own. We're actually hoping to help You see, we've recently been having some discussions as a staff and a council about how much we are asking of all of you to do in our church. 
Put simply, we're looking at how many programs we're asking you to volunteer in, how much money we're asking you to give, and how many items we're asking you to donate. And we don't have answers to those questions yet, but we're having the discussion because what we've realized is that if we're going to ask you to do this, participate in table groups and practice Sabbath, which we're going to talk about next month, then we need to help you do that. We can't be asking you to be so involved in church that you don't actually have time to do any of that other stuff. Second, we also understand that there's a natural flow to this sort of thing. There might be some seasons of your life where you feel like you can participate in one of these groups and so you join one. And then there might be some seasons of your life where you can't participate and so you feel the need to bow out and that's okay. We are intentionally trying to build on and off ramps into this ministry so that people can cycle in and out as they need to. And obviously we don't want too much of that because then that eliminates the accountability and community that these groups are designed to have together. But we do recognize that as we go through seasons in our lives, there might be times when we can engage more and times when we can't. And so we want to be flexible enough to allow for that. Finally, what if you already have another group or you just don't want to join one of these groups? Well, that's great. I still want to be your pastor. We still want this to be your church. You're still welcome here. You don't have to be part of these groups to be a member of Ivanrest. In fact, we expect that not all of you will be. Some of you are getting this elsewhere. Some of you just aren't interested, and that's okay. You might just have to put up with the occasional four-week sermon series on a spiritual discipline. But given how interested I've been in those recently, you were probably going to have to do that anyway. So, and I hope to preach those series in a way that anyone, whether you're in one of these groups or not, can benefit from. After all, the goal isn't to get people in groups. The goal, the goal is pruning, growing in our faith, and becoming better disciples of Jesus. That's the upside-down grace of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus tells us in this passage that if we want to be his disciples, we have to let God prune us. We have to let him cut some stuff away. We have to let him reorder and reorient our lives around him. And that's uncomfortable. That's hard. There are times where that hurts. But it's also necessary. Like a gardener. God comes into our lives, cuts away the stuff that is growing inward and scraggly and stunting our growth, and instead he frees us to grow up towards the light. And who is that light? Well, earlier in this gospel, chapter one, John tells us, the light is Jesus Christ. He's our savior, our Lord, and our rabbi. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And he did all of that for us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, you have called us to the way of discipleship to follow you, to abide in you, to make our very home in you. But God, (laughs) Jesus, you have not called us to do that without knowing the cost yourself. As our rabbi, Lord, Savior, and King, you have gone ahead of us. You have lived through it, died through it, and lived again through it. And you call us now to follow you.
to abide with you, to spend our time with you. Help us as we are pruned to do just that. We pray this in the name of the whole, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.